I want to speak a message today called, Are You Making Good Choices? Are you making good choices? And I'm sure that all of you well know, at least if you've been here very long, you know that we make a point of mentioning something about choices about every other week. That God has ordained that man in this world live by his choices. The decisions you make will really determine the kind of person you are and how well your life will be at the end. Whether you're a successful person or an unsuccessful person, many times depends on simple choices that you make in life. Whether to get up and go look or to lay home and wait on God, it's still a choice. Whether to come to church or sleep in, it's still a choice. Whether to whatever you want to call it, it's still a choice. We live that way. Our personalities are determined by our choices. We know each other as the kind of person we have become because of the way we have learned to make choices in life. Now, if you don't make good choices, then you make bad choices. I believe this. There's only good choices or bad choices. And so that means that as a Christian, I need to know what is meant by a good choice. And a good choice is only that which is acceptable to God. And anything else is unacceptable. Would you agree? Maybe. That there are only two ways, two choices, good or bad. If I make good choices, I find myself in the favor of God. I may have to give up something or deny myself something to make a good choice, but at least I made the right choice. Now, if I know what is right, but I really don't want to do it because I really want to do something else, I really want to go another direction, but I know it's not the right way, but I make that decision, that was my choice. Nobody made it for me. I chose to do bad. Now, because I didn't get immediately judged or chastised or fall into some loathsome disease or have an accident, I began to think maybe it's not as bad as we thought it was. Good or bad choices. God keeps record, and he knows. But only good choices are acceptable, and only good comes from God. If you want to live a Christian life, you have to hear the Lord. You have to read his word and discover what's right and what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, what he judges and what he gives grace to. You have to find out. Because as a Christian, you can't live any way you want to. You can't live the way you used to. All those old things you used to do, you're going to discover that as a Christian, you can't do that anymore. You can't keep the same old attitudes. That was a choice. You can't get angry all the time. That's a choice. You can't love what God hates. That's a choice too. But we live by choices. We're barraged all the time with all these things out here that want to influence our choices. And most everything out there is all against God. Well, it doesn't seem like it because people tell us it's not so bad. It's, you know, you're not going to hell because of that. That's usually what they say to justify doing whatever they want to do. Well, you're not going to hell for that, are you? And so it gives man a lot of leeway in making bad choices, but somehow thinking it's okay. I mean, after all, God knows I'm just in the flesh. He knows I'm not strong, and he knows I'm not a super saint and all of those kind of things. But essentially, choice defines you. Your volition, your will, your choices, things you choose defines you. I could ask one of your friends what kind of person you are, and what they tell me 
in their relationship with you, what they know about you is based on the choices you make, whether you're moody, you're touchy, selfish, a smart aleck, cynical. They would know that by being around you because that's the choices you make as to how you want to respond to things or see things. And always, and this is never a time this isn't true, choices always have consequences. A bad choice may not appear to have been a bad choice spiritually right now, but it'll show up somewhere. And God is against bad, and God is for good. But there's always consequences. Before I get to my message this morning, I want you to turn to two passages in the Old Testament, Joshua and 1 Kings, that show us choices and the importance of choices that we're all going to have to face. Joshua 24 and verse 15. I think you all have heard this story and you're pretty familiar with this. It's when Joshua in his final speech to the people as before they walk over into that fair and happy land, the land of God that he provided for them, he said this, Let me read verse 14 first. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. And verse 15, and if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Here's your choices, whether the gods which your father served that are on the other side of the flood or the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm sure a lot of people have said they would and didn't, but at least it is here for us to see. Sometimes we get real convicted. A man can get convicted about not being a real man and want to really do something about it, but not do anything about it. Meant well, but didn't do anything about it. But here, he said, there's two choices. He said, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, then serve the God in whose land you now dwell. Now, what would he mean by evil? Well, the word evil in the Hebrew means something that is unreasonable to you. Something that's too hard, too demanding, costly. It's just unreasonable. So he's saying to them, as it would be applied to us, he said, now, make up your mind whom you're going to serve in this life. Who are you going to dedicate yourself to and you're going to serve? Either serve God, who wants, as he said in verse 14, he wants your heart and your mind, and you got to do this in all honesty and truth, or else serve the world. Because it's out there and it would love to have you and keep you. But you got to make up your mind. Because God will either accept you or God will reject you, all based on these choices. Because we know how he feels about the God of the Amorites and all the idol worshipers that were in the land of Canaan whenever the Israelites went in. God said about them, he said, destroy them all. Destroy them all. I don't want a trace of these people left in this land. They are an abomination to me as God. And so he said, you go in and destroy the land, and every place your foot steps, I'll give it to you. I'll send the hornets before you to help drive them out. 
How many of you know that God wasn't for the Canaanites? That he didn't just love them? The Canaanites had turned against God, and therefore God was bringing judgment on the Canaanites. But anyway, he told his people, if you're going to serve me, you've got to serve me on my terms. Because if you don't serve me on my terms, your choice is to do it another way, and that's a bad choice. That's a wrong choice. You either serve it right way or the wrong way. Now, this is not a message that people like. This is not a message that the contemporary, modern, today church would really like. Because God wants to bring us before him, we could just use the phrase of the Bible, in the valley of decision. He wants to bring you before him and confront you with your life. He has given you the freedom and the privilege of living in this life. He's even put you in a good country. You're not suffering. Nobody in this room is suffering. Your bills probably are mostly paid, and at least you got a chance. So you're way ahead of the rest of the world. But he said, it's not this world that I want. It's you in this world living on my terms. Now, if you won't do that, then I have to reach a judgment against you because righteousness declares that. This is the way you walk in. If you won't walk that way, then you'll have to be judged. Now, people today don't like that because in religion today, we like to think that, you know, I'm really all right. I'm not that bad. But God doesn't say that. God says there's two ways, right and wrong, good and bad. Go to 1 Kings 18 and verse 21. In 1 Kings 18, 21, Elijah the prophet. I think you're all familiar with this one too. He said in verse 21, and Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you halt between two opinions? Now, there's only two. There's only two. It's either God or the world. It's either God or the devil. It's either light or darkness. There's only two. We could say it like this. Either we in this room this morning here, Either we want to serve the Lord and will by acts of our will or we'll serve somebody else or something else. It may seem right. It may look pretty close, but you know what the Bible says about there is a way that seemeth right. There is a way that seems right. I mean, look how many follow it. Look how good we feel about it. But he said there is a way that seems right, but the end of that way is death because it's not right if it's not exactly the way God wants it. Again, this is not a popular message, but I think God has a reason for sharing it. But he said, how long will you halt between two opinions? He said, if the Lord be God, follow him. If what the Bible says about God is true, then follow that. Obviously, it's the only thing that's going to work. But he said, if, if you want to follow Baal, follow him. But make a decision. I would that you were hot or cold. God confronts us like this. Sometimes it's nice to think, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time. I've sat under this one, under that one. I've been here, been there, been around the world, preached to a lot of people. Why don't you just ease up a bit? It'd be easy to do that because in your own estimation of yourself, you've done a whole lot, maybe a whole lot more than other people have. And after all, that'll get you in heaven, won't it? But then you get away from serving God and you start serving yourself. You start doing things your way, and that's wrong. Can't be right. 
It's wrong. How long will you halt between two opinions? Halt means to hesitate. This is very much like James chapter 1, and opinions means to be divided in your mind. It's like James 1, if any man lack wisdom, ask of God who gives, but let him ask in faith without wavering, for he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And what does he say? What does God say if a man, when he halts or he wavers, when he, you either ask and believe or you ask and don't believe? It's two. It's not I ask and almost believe or kind of believe. No, if you kind of believe, you don't believe. You either believe or you don't. You either qualify on God's terms as believing or you qualify as not believing. When you're not doing it his way, he said, let not this man. Ooh, that's hard, isn't it? It is hard. He said, let not that man think that he shall receive anything. Anything? Anything? Now, a man comes along, knows how offensive that is to a religious church member, and he says, well, surely God didn't mean anything. I mean, after all, we're still all right. We're still going to heaven. And, you know, after all, I mean, what God probably meant here was that. And people love to hear that because when you say anything, let not that man think that he shall receive anything from the Lord. That's pretty narrow. Whoo, we. Preacher, tell us that doesn't mean what you just said. Because we want to think we're all right. We don't want to have to make decisions that's going to radically change our lives that much. Man, make it say something that we're all right with. And most preachers do. And I'm sure that they say a lot of things in a loving way that are corrective and all of that. I'm not against people trying to use some wisdom. I'm just trying to tell you what he said. How long will you halt between two opinions? How long will you hesitate and be divided in your mind about what's right and what's wrong? What did they answer him in that verse? They answered him not a word. Why? Why wouldn't somebody there say, absolutely, that is right? Because that would be a person who obviously has made that decision, who has welcomed the cross into their life, has been willing to put everything on the cross that is in opposition to God so they can walk in the favor of God and enjoy his goodness. And because they are experiencing that, they haven't lost anything. The Super Bowl wasn't that big a deal. In fact, everybody that's all enamored about it don't even know who played last year. So it's not like it's even important. And what is important is your relationship with God and are you doing good? Are you doing bad? Are you doing right? Are you doing wrong? What kind of choices are you making as light comes from God about how he wants you to live and the kind of man or woman he wants you to be? How do you measure have you been making bad choices? You've been making good choices. You've got to make choices. You can make a choice to clam up and get a little hot under the collar. That's your choice. Or you can shake your head and go, man, he's wearing me out. Well, that's not a choice. That's just an acknowledgement. <laughs> but if you say, I don't buy all that, that's a choice. Because that's the kind of person deep down inside. This is a person that God sees. This is the kind of person that God sees. So let's start our message this morning by going to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, and beginning in verse 13. 
Enter ye in at the straight gate. You heard that before, haven't you? For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads to life and few there be that find it. Now there's two gates, two choices, only two ways here. We're back to two. A straight gate and a broad gate. You know what it says? A broad way and a narrow way. And in both cases here, there's three points at each of these. A gate is an entrance. It's how you come into something. It's how you get there. Let's look at the broad way first. As I said in verse 13, there are three facts. You enter into this through a wide gate. No restrictions. Come as you are. You're accepted on the basis of just going through it. You're all right. Just go through there. You're okay. And anybody can do it. There's no effort. You don't have to try. You don't even have to join if you don't want to. In religious terms, you go where you want to go, leave when you want to leave, try if you want to try, and you're your own boss. And chances are you have a broad way attitude because a lot of people that are walking in a broad way are picking and choosing what they want to believe. And they make excuses as to why they don't believe everything. Again, this great trashy excuse to the end is, well, after all, I don't think you're going to hell because you don't do this or that. Somebody should have told that man picking up sticks on the Sabbath day that you don't think God would judge you for picking up sticks, do you? To light a fire so he can make something to eat? And they stoned him to death. I would say at least with concerning sticks on the Sabbath, that's pretty narrow. That's pretty narrow. But all oh, we would never allow that to be a truth in our life in the end times. We, uh, the whole bunch, church. And yet, you and I know that God is narrow. That what Jesus did was not a cheap thing that you can have. You don't buy what Jesus bought at the discount stores. And what he has, you can't even buy. It's got to be given to you. And yet, if God took that much pain and agony to supply you with eternal life, and he gives it to you, and he says, I want you to live this way. There's no other way, is there? There is no other way. That's right. And I want you to live this way. And people say, man, I don't know about that. That's awful narrow. But it's a way of no restrictions. You can feel what you want to feel. Lust. Pride of life, be cool. You don't have to make yourself to be anything but how you feel. And you can say, I am my own man. Like a girl I know whose name is Katie. She had shaved her head at one time in her life and was rebellious and just that age until one day her friend said, you know, we are what we are by what we've chosen. And she said she realized, I guess, in that time of her life, looking in the mirror and looking at herself, the way she was living, she was able to say, because of God's goodness, none of this is right. I'm benefiting nobody with my life. I'm just out here declaring who I am and what I want in your face and all that stuff. Well, you can do that on the broad way. A second thing that it says about this broad way is that it leads to destruction. 
Does your Bible say that in verse 13? So if you go the broad way, the limitless, iniquitous, self-rule way, then you'll be destroyed. You can add church to that scenario. You can go to church and be a part of the most progressive. You can belong to the serious church or the circus church. Circus church. I should have brought it out here today. I got a big clipping about a pet services in a church. Pet service, P-E-T, pet. Dogs, cats. You bring your dog to service and they provide bones, little doggy biscuits, and they preach to these, well, they have souls and they, you know, God speaks of animals and he loves animals. See, you start talking that way and people who have empty minds, well, yeah, that sounds good. Well, yeah, you know, oh boy. Next thing you know, a pet was involved in the atonement. Jesus died for pets. You get to thinking like that. And you get off on a broad way through life and you get so set in what is so pleasing to your flesh that when somebody tells you that's wrong, you just want to fight. But that's the way the devil deceives people in the last day. That's a seducing spirit. It's a departure from the truth. It appeals to the lust of a person's flesh and a person's life and the gaining of their dreams and their hopes and doing your own thing. Aim at the stars, maybe you'll hit the moon, that type of thing. But it's a way of destruction. It's interesting that the word destruction here is the same word used in Hebrews 10 and verse 39. He said, we are not of those that draw back to perdition. Remember the just shall live by faith? But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of those that draw back to perdition. Is that true? Just want you to see it. The just shall live how? By faith. Why would anybody draw back from that? It'd be easier to find out who hadn't. Because it gets hard. It gets demanding. It's just unreasonable. Therefore, because it's just a blow to your style, it becomes evil. And he said, I didn't say this. He said, he said, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him then how do you say you're saved? How do you say when you die, you go to heaven? When God says, I have no pleasure in you, how do you still make it to heaven? You know what they say at the funeral? Oh, he was a good man. Boy, he could hit a ball further than anybody ever saw. Oh, this man could run faster than anybody in the world. Oh, he loved people. Was he saved? Saved? What's that? Did he love God? Did he choose a way of holiness? Oh, I don't, I don't think any of that. Well, then he was lost. This is too narrow for some people. It isn't for you, but this is black or white, right or wrong, up or down. It's two, one or two. You either are or you aren't. But the interesting thing is, you know, he said as a third point in verse 13, he said, many go this way. Don't they know it's a way of destruction? They would go anyway long as they could do their own thing, they would go anyway. They would go anyway. Why do people go that way? Because it's easy. It's easy. Take the church, the church on Broadway. <laughs> church on Broadway. It's easy. Nothing is required. There are no restrictions. We would wish you not live with your girlfriend. We would rather you not party and drink and, and use abusive language. But look, God loves you, and we're not going to condemn you. You ever heard stuff like that? God loves you. 
And I'm not here this morning in this pulpit to condemn anybody because of their sin. I mean, those of us without sin, throw a stone. Well, none of us are going to throw a stone. So we begin to excuse everybody's evil and sinfulness. And it's a license to just continue on your own way and wish you were spiritual, but because you're not, nobody else is, you're all right. Come on, God's bigger than you are, and he's bigger than your weaknesses and your flailings and your falterings. How do you get like that? Falsehood. Falsehood. False perverted teaching. The distortion or the twisting of the word. The wiles of the devil through angels of light in the pulpit. Explaining away the truth of the word. We talked about vanity the last few weeks. They make the word of God of no effect. It doesn't make people holy anymore. Very few become, but not as a church because everybody's got a way out. Everybody's afraid to say what is right, what ought to be said. This is an age of riot probably unlike any time since the Roman Empire. Drinking, carousing, a time which is obsessed with sex, obsessed with all deviant forms of it, whatever nastiness, whatever, with pornography and filthy literature and dress. People choose that because the influence of your feelings, it's your lust of your flesh. And you can get so far into that that, as God said, he gives you up to that and you can't get out of that. Now, thank God he made a distinction with a whole bunch of us. But he can leave you there, then you die, not because he didn't want you to be saved, because you chose to sin. We would have died too, but God did something special to us called grace. Brought us out of that miry clay. He did. We also like the Broadway church because it's not a boring church. It's exciting. It is. It's exciting. How long is the sermon out in the big church? 21 minutes. 21 minutes. Now listen to me. Let me be fair about this. I'm not saying that in 21 minutes, a skillful, well-versed man couldn't say a whole lot. I am sure that somebody way above me could say what I say in 20 minutes. It takes me an hour to say. I'm sure. I'm absolutely sure. That's why I could never work on a radio program. It would never work. I did make radio tapes once. I made two. I did. I got the second tape. I was teaching on faith. It's a 15-minute tape. I think after about 11 minutes, I said, that's all I got. And he looked up and said, we can't do that. I said, I ain't going to do this either. <laughs> this ain't going to work. It's not my call. It's not my motivation. It's not what I want to do. I could go ahead and do it anyway. It wouldn't work because it's not what God gave me to do. We think if we do something spiritual, oh, God will bless it. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. You talk about being saved today in the big church, saved. They don't know what saved is. Saved from what? The economic breakdown, meltdown? Saved from what? You don't hear much about that anymore. 
People today in churches, I guess a lot of preachers do, they assume that you're saved if you join here. If you come in this room and you sit here for three or four weeks or three or four years in a row, we assume that you're saved. I'm guilty of that. I just assume that everybody here is saved. Now, I really want you to know I don't feel like that anymore because I know that there's a whole lot more to what God wants than what he's getting. There really is. But I know that God is very serious about what he's saying. And I know we're talking ourselves out of some things that we shouldn't be talked out of. Because I want to be saved. The Bible says you receive the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The end of your faith. The Bible says you must endure to the end to be saved. Now we don't like to preach that because that is offensive to a lot of people. Or as Joshua said, if it be evil to you, they don't like to hear that, so we back off from saying that. But it's true. If you draw back, you draw back to destruction. If you don't believe, you don't get anything. And if you do believe, you got to believe to the end. And if you believe to the end, you got to endure while you're believing, or you get nothing. The folks say, you're making that too hard. I'm not making it anything. I just learned years ago in grade school how to read, and this is what I've come up with. Go back to verse 14. Because straight is a gate and narrow is the way which leads unto life, and few there be that find it. Well, it's a straight gate. It's a narrow way. Let me read a couple of translations here. One of them said, because narrow is the gate and constricted is the way. Is the Christian life narrow? Is it, if you read the whole Bible and you're not afraid of it, is it pretty confining? He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it's what? Sin. First John 5, 20 says, sin is of the devil. You think, man, let me go on. Another translation says, how narrow is the gate and restricted is the way. And even the old reverse standard version says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard. And it is hard. And it is narrow. You see, the gate refers to Jesus Christ. Other commentators have other things, but I like to think of the gate as Jesus Christ. He says, I am the doorway to the sheepfold. No man can come to the Father except how? Through me on my terms. When the Bible says this is the way, you must walk this way, then that's what God holds us to. Jesus said, you can't come to me. You can't be a part of what I'm doing except you come into it through me. So you must be confronted with Christ. And he begins, as you read the Bible, like the Sermon on the Mount, he begins to declare the Christian life of what he wants. Sometimes you think it would have been easier to follow the law because Jesus deals with the heart. All you had to do with the law was an outward action. You didn't have to feel anything, just bring your lamb up there and kill it, and all right, thank you, and then leave. But you can't do that with the Lord. In the Old Testament, you committed adultery if you actually committed adultery. But in the New Testament, if you think it, if it's in your mind to lust after a woman, you're guilty. If you're angry in your heart with somebody, then you're guilty of murder. 
Jesus said, I cannot let you get by with anything because whatever remains and exists and continues to operate, I must judge it. So therefore, I cannot leave you alone. In fact, he said, whomever I love, I chasten. I instruct, I teach, I correct. A good parent will do that with their children. If they're not doing it the way you want them to do it and you know they're not doing it right, you correct them. You do whatever you have to do. You deal with them. Let me give you something else about this. Three facts about this narrow gate. He said, first of all, it is a straight gate. It's very restricted. Not many people can walk with Jesus because they're too much into the world. Secondly, he said, this way leads to life. It leads to life. It's not easy. The Bible still says it is with difficulty that a righteous man is saved. I mean, those that are living right, it is with difficulty that they're saved. Or 1 John 5 has said, it is with difficulty that the righteous are saved. This is not easy to do. This is not an easy life. It's not a life of luxury. It's very confining, very restricted. Whosoever he be of you, Jesus said, that does not give up all that you own cannot be my disciple. Wow, Luke 14, 33. Give it up, that's what he said. Doesn't mean you have to sell everything you have and give to poor, but you gotta have a heart to do that. You can't put your mother, your father, a football game or anything else in front of God. Oops, I said it again. Well, I meant it though. You're smiling, I'm not. You can put nothing between you and God. There's only two ways, folks. Your way, his way, right way, wrong way, good way, bad way. Only two. And the only one that's going to be right that makes us in favor with God and we walk through this life blessed is by making the choices that God gives us to make. Anything else is wrong. Anything else. I don't care if you build a big fancy building and fill it full of people. If he didn't give you that to do, it's still wrong. Because people will worship the thing. They will have glowing reports about the thing without regard to the people in the thing. Well, how could that be? How could that be? Well, it just could be. It leads to life. The word for life is zoe. There's two words, bios, B-I-O-S, which means biological, biology, and zoe, zoological. Zoe doesn't mean just not a biological existence because it does mean in this world you have life that comes from God. That while you're living a natural life, the life in you that propels you is divine life, holy life. It's the life that God gives. This is why we're able to make good decisions and go the right way. Would you go over there to Matthew 18 concerning these decisions and leads to life and restrictions? This is pretty tough. Matthew 18, 8 and 9. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life, that's our word zoe, halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet, to be what? Cast into everlasting fire? All because you didn't deal with a problem with your hand or your foot. Listen, you can cut your hands and feet off. You can cut your nose off and get your thumb in there and somehow or another just pull your eyeball out and just yank it out there. 
The sin is not in the house as much as it is what motivates your house to be used like that. It's something on the inside. It's the corruption of the heart. He uses these as an example. He said, verse 9, if your eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell. It is better for you to make whatever adjustments you have to make, whatever decisions you have to make now in order to please God and to walk in his way, even if it's a radical decision you've got to make. I can't do that anymore. I can't go that way anymore. I can't do that. And you begin to take a stand. You begin to say, this is the way that I'm going to do it. I notice thirdly, back in Matthew chapter 7, if you go back there, a third thing is that he said, only a few are going to find it. He said, many go into Broadway, but he said, here, only a few are going to find it. Now, what does that mean? Seemed like all the glowing prophetic reports you hear today is that masses numbering in the millions are coming to the Lord. That's what I hear. I don't know if they are or not. I'm just saying when it comes right down to the end of it, Jesus said few will find it. That's what he said. Now, the question is, are you one of the few? Can you prove it? Can you get along with your Lord and face the Lord and say to him in a good conscience, I know I'm one of yours and I know that I'm serving you like you're teaching me to. I know I'm walking in a good way. I know that I don't let anything get between me and you, not my hobbies, not my interests, not my likes, dislikes. I got so much money now that I can travel to Israel. But I'm not going to let that get in my way. Are you one of those that can say, I put aside everything that tries to get between God and I? Can I judge myself like that? Can I make a decision about that concerning myself? Why is it that only a few people find this way? Look how many millions of people go to church. How is it only a few are finding it? I'm asking you all this morning, this quiet hour. Why is it that so many people attend meetings and so few? Jesus said, Jesus said only a few people are finding it. Why? How do you find it? Turn to Jeremiah. Put your finger wherever you are and turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29, look at verse 13. And you shall seek me and you shall find me. When you search for me with all your heart. Is that what it says? Huh. He said, and you shall seek me and you shall find me. If you want to find, you have to seek. But you have to seek in this way. You have to, in seeking, you have to search for me with all your heart. Maybe that's the defining label right there with all your heart. Would you agree with me that what Jeremiah says there goes further than attending two meetings a week? Yes. Sitting around talking for a little bit about how we've done this week and all what I was going on and then going home and wait to the next meeting. Isn't there more to what we're doing than just that? Doesn't God issue challenges to us in our hearts? Doesn't he speak to us about his way and the fact that he can't see it well in our lives yet and he wants that or he's going to have to deal with us? 
What if I told you that God loves you so much? He wants to take you to heaven. I mean, he wants to get you there. And he's not going to play games with you to get you there because you can't get there playing games. It's not about entertainment. It's not about what's fun. It's not about how many people are here and we're just having a good time. And look, we're going to Haiti and we're going to Dominican Republic or we're going to Guatemala or we're going to Ecuador. We're going to all these places where, man, we are really. He says, I want your heart. I want a personal relationship between you and me so that you make the choices I give you and you show you make that choice by the life that you live. Quit excusing yourself. Quit saying it's all right. He said, you shall find me when you search for me with all your heart. And yet Jesus said, Jesus said in Luke 13, 24, he said, strive to enter in at the narrow gate for many I say unto you will seek to enter and not be able. Because of distractions. Maybe it's the seducing spirits in the last days that are causing many to depart from the faith. I've watched people depart from the faith in the last 20 years that I would have bet the ranch on if I was a bet. I would have bet the ranch that people that strong would never have done it. I've been around people that seem so solid and so steadfast. Today, they're back into the world as much as they ever were. Why? Because of the influence of something, they made a bad choice. A lot of you young men, especially if you want to be a preacher, boy, it's easy to have that zeal and start out. Then when God begins to prove you, just checking your attitude out, what if we meet at 6.30 instead of 4? What are you going to do? Are you going to cry? <laughs> he may prove you. First meeting you have, six people showed up. They gave you $1.30. And you're like, how am I going to live off of that? What you ought to do. I've been there, sort of. Take that $1.30 and say, praise the Lord. That's a coffee and a donut and a bottle of something pop going home tonight. Because tomorrow in the mail, there's probably all you need will come in tomorrow some other way. God will take care of you, but he'll prove you. He told his disciples, when you go out and preach, don't take a purse. The laborer is worthy of his hire. Trust the Lord like that. Don't talk about your needs and ask for money and appeal to people all the time. I don't mean there's not a time you cannot say, brother, I'm in a bind, can you help me? But preachers are so guilty of distorting the whole thing by begging, begging from the pulpit. Jesus said, seek and you'll find. Knock, it shall be opened. But the seeking is with all your heart. Folks, it's easy. Listen to me. It's easy to get casual here. Just come and go, loafing spiritually, loafing. Not reading your Bible through the week, not even praying. See, well, this last week, if I counted it all up, I didn't pray three minutes the whole week. The whole week. Three minutes. Are you married? Yeah, I'm married. You don't pray for your mate? How about children? You got children? Yeah, you got grandchildren? Yeah, well, you got plenty to pray about. You do. What's wrong with you? What's happened to you? 
Why is this no longer an eager and zealous life that you're so grateful to be a part of? How is it that it's sort of been a whole hum set aside as a whole hum? Why are you wanting to change everything and do something new and something different and exciting? Do you think painting it, building it bigger is going to make you more spiritual? God sees the heart, not the bricks. He sees the heart. This is what's important to him. And he lovingly gives us the right choices to make. Now, whether or not we're making them, I don't know. But you're going to find Jesus. You're going to have to let him reveal himself to you, and he'll do that if you'll search for him. You know what he said in Jeremiah again? Chapter 29, verse 14. And he said, if you search for me with all your heart, what did he say? I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will make life tough for you. He said, I will turn away your captivity. The devil knows this too, folks. If you find Jesus and you yearn for him with all your heart, the devil knows he's limited as what he can do in your life and how much bondage he can bring on you and how ugly he can make you. Why only a few finding it? Let me give you three reasons why just a few. One, they're not finding it so they can enter into it because they're not comprehending it. They don't perceive it. The picture, it's not coming together for them. They don't see the temper of the Lord in all of this. They don't see the you must obey the Lord type thing. They just can't see it. They have no real interest. There's a verse in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. It talks about whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine in unto them. They can't see it. They can't get excited about it. They can't get involved in really worshiping God because of because they don't see what's the big deal. If a whole church gets that way, we're dead. We're hammered dead. A second reason is that they see it. I got it. I perceive what is required of me, but I don't think I want to do that. I know a lot of people in other churches, and they don't have to do all that, and they're all right. They see it, but they just don't want it. They might say this, well, I can't afford to be the governor of the state and follow the Lord as you preach him in this church because that would limit me and what I am supposed to do as a governor. So you come back and say, maybe you're not supposed to be the governor. You're supposed to be a Christian. Maybe you're not supposed to be the governor. Well, how are we going to build this nice new building if we don't get this loan over here? Maybe you're not supposed to build the building. It's not the way God wants you to do it. Why don't we look at the rights and wrongs, the two choices? Well, I need to go to certain such a place and do such a thing, but man, I'm just struck. Maybe you're not supposed to go. Would it destroy your zeal if you just had to sit home and read your Bible or seek after God or take notes? Write yourself a letter someday after you read a chapter of the Bible and say, better hide this one though. You know, as I look at myself, I'm really coming up short. And the fact of the matter is, I really am not all that interested in doing anything about it. It's like a person I heard of once who said, yeah, I'm not doing too good. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not doing good. Your response is, so what are you going to do about it? I don't know. Well, you got to know that. God hasn't left you with a blank. He didn't leave us 
void of something to do that makes us right, we're losing interest. Living waters are becoming a swamp. Things are not the way they're supposed to be because we're making bad choices. And thirdly, because of the few that he chooses, these few are going to be committed to Jesus. Some didn't get it, some got it and don't want it, but the few who get it, they're committed. They are committed to Jesus. This is your life. Live in this word. We come together as Christians into this place twice a week because this is the most important function in my life outside of my home. This is it right here. I need to be here. Otherwise, I'm not a part of this. I'm still a visitor. I need to be here. Now, I got a lot to learn, and some nights and some days are better than other days, but I need to be here. I want things to be right. But that's the way it works. A person who's found the Lord, who really had his life turned around, or her life really turned around, and you say, there's no other way for me to ever live. I won't do there, go there. I won't sign that, swear to that. I won't do any of those things anymore because the word of the Lord has come to me for the last 40 years teaching me a better way and the right way. God forbid that I would corrupt myself by making bad choices now. I don't want to be a castaway after all these years. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the gate. He is the way. John 14 said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Is he? That's the best choice. And that's the only choice. I am the way. There's no other way. I'm the truth. There is no other truth. And he's the life. Outside of him, there's nothing else. Everything else dies. Are you with me? That's why we're so popular in the world when we preach this gospel. Even religion today calls us the radical right. The radical right. And you look at the Bible and you say, if I'm saying what Jesus said and you're calling me radical, then what are you? Are you even right at all? <laughs> you might not be right yourself. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the life. That's what he said. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is our life shall appear, we shall appear with him always the saints in glory. He is our life, Jesus. 1 John 5, 20 says, and we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true. Even in his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. There is no life, there is no eternal life outside of Christ in anything else you do, anywhere else you go, it is only and solely in Jesus. And anything else is wrong. It may sound good. As I said, there's a way that seems right unto man, but the end of those ways are what? Death. Now, how narrow is Jesus' way? I've already mentioned a few narrow ways. Let me give you one more. Turn to Hebrews 5. I'm not trying to make this hard. I just want to make it clear. Folks, this is why we're here. This is what we're looking at. You may want to take a week and say, I got to think about just how serious I am about the Lord. Maybe you need to get on your face and weep a while. Maybe you need to ask God to forgive you of your attitude. I don't know. I'm no different than you are. 
We have to deal with it. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9. And being made perfect, that is completing his mission, fulfilling that which he came to do, completion, it's like a seed growing to maturity. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to whom? Now, listen to me, all of you. Is anybody else saved? We want them to be. Is anybody else saved? He said he became the author of eternal salvation to those who obey him. Didn't he? Well, there's a salvation without obeying him. Can you be in rebellion to Jesus and be saved? Can you do your own thing and make excuses for it and be saved? No. No other way. Can't be done. He's already told us this is the way we have to walk. This is the way we have to live. The word obey is a word hupakuo. Isn't that good? Hupakuo is a compound word. Hupa means under. Akuo or aku means to hear. And the picture is you know what you need to hear. You know where the word of the Lord is. And so you go to hear it with the intention of learning what it means so you can do it. Hupakuo. Obey. That's what obedience is. One who has heard, a light has come into his life, and that person begins to live that way. That's the choice they make. The Bible said those are the ones that Jesus is saving. What about all these people with the Holy Spirit? You know what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit? The Bible said Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to those that obey him. Acts 5, 32. He gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. Well, what about all the people that aren't obeying him that are Pentecostal? Charismatics. Whoo-wee. See, you get to thinking like that, and you feel a little tremble. A little tremble begins to come over. And it should, because Philippians 2 talks about fear and trembling. It's not easy. God forbid you be left behind because you listened to what was said and then you let it slide and forgot it and kept living the way you were and Jesus came and you were left out. I have to give an account for you people. You know that? I have to give an account for you. I would rather be able to stand before God and say, to the best of my ability, I spared no words and told them what you said as best I understood it. I'd rather say that while you're weeping than for you to stand there and say, he didn't tell us what to do. He just lollygagged around with words and stumbled over words, couldn't remember his verse. And I didn't know we were supposed to do that. He didn't tell us. That's why God says, woe to the shepherds that scatter the sheep. You have a moral, spiritual, eternal obligation to declare only one thing to God's people, and that's the truth. I'm not a builder. I'm not a program organizer. It's one thing I want to do and one thing I concentrate on and not get distracted by other things. That's just preach the word. Because it's the only thing that will get us to heaven. Jesus said it's the only thing necessary. And that one thing when it's received becomes life. It becomes our life. Can we be perfect? What about the Sermon on the Mount again? He said, Matthew 5, uh, in the last verse, he said, Be you therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Can you be perfect? We've already dismissed the possibility. We, meaning the church. I can't be perfect. 
Well, let me ask you something. Did Jesus say, be you therefore perfect? If that's not possible, then he lied to us because he gave us something to do that we can't do. But if he told us to do it, then we can't. Not without him or not apart from him, but that's what we do. We can be perfect without spot. Is that in there? Without wrinkle or any such thing. Blameless. Faultless. Without sin. Is that possible? Measure yourself. Measure yourself. How about separation from the world? Must we be separated? Must we limit ourselves to who we fellowship with? 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That could involve clubs and organizations that you're members of. All right. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteous, either or, one or the other. You're either right or you're unright. And what communion has, here we are, two again, light with darkness. Maybe you're not in the light. Maybe you enjoy their fellowship and you tolerate that because maybe you're not in the light. What if that was true with anybody in this room this morning? You really aren't in the light. What would you do about it? What if your heart so stirred you and God so spoke clear to you this morning that he said, you're really not right. You have chosen to surround yourself with a bunch of goof-offs and you're losing interest. What about being holy? Can we be holy? Holy means pure and living, pure of life. Dedicated, consecrated, committed to God. Holy lives, living according to the word separated. You know, in verse 17 and 18 here in this chapter, look at this. Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And it's a condition for fellowship with God in verse 18. And I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. What is the condition that makes us in fellowship with the Lord? Separation from the world, isn't it? That's the broad way. What if we're not doing it? I'm asking you this morning about, are you making good choices? Luke 13 and verse 23. Do you suppose what Jesus taught was narrow or hard? I mean, do you think so? Here's what the disciples who listened to him for three years, here's what they said in this one instance. Verse 23, then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? Now, did Jesus tell us earlier that few find this way to life? So the disciples said, Lord, are there few that be saved? Look at the answer, verse 24. Strive, the word means agonize, agonia. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and will not be able. They will not be able. Now, when once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut to the door, and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door. Maybe this was a rapture. I don't know. But they said, Lord, Lord, open to us, and he shall answer and say unto them, I know you not who you are. 
Then shall they begin to say, Lord, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say unto them, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of the teeth. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Luke 6 says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom, but he that doeth the will of my Father. Jesus said, not everybody that says, Lord, shall enter into heaven. Many shall say to me in that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? We're talking about the church now. The church of power, the ministry, the big shots, or the little shots. Didn't we, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? He said, I never knew you. Were they saved? No. I'll help you. No. He said, I never knew you. He knows who his own are. In a great house, there's not only vessels of wood and silver, some good and some bad. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2, the Lord knoweth those that are his. He knows. They're his. What I'm saying to you this morning are the things that make you stop and think in your busy day and all that's going on in your life. We're confronted with the reality of eternal life being real or just being, yeah, yeah. It's either vital or it's, uh, yeah, it's okay. We cannot linger in this world and let Jesus come and miss it. What a horrible thing to think that Jesus came for his own and we weren't. After all these years, we didn't make it. That would be a horrible, horrible thing. Terrible. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, is it going to be difficult? Amen. Would you bow your head for me, please? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning for all the good and kind things you're doing for us, for the good way you're leading us, for your long suffering toward us. You're so tolerant. And it is true, Lord, that you have not judged us as our sins deserve. And sometimes, Father, we're so worldly. We are so worldly. I pray in Jesus' name that everything that has to happen to make us pleasing in your sight and to hear you say at the end, well done, thou good and faithful servant, that you'll do it so that nobody here, Lord, is left behind. I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? While we take communion today, let's remember that we're focusing on the one who is called the gate that not many can enter and he's invited you to go through. If there's anything that's in his way, get rid of it. Because what we're taking are the very elements that God points to to show that what he did and what he had to go through to make this possible. Let's have grateful hearts this morning as we do this. Amen.